Mark chapter 3, you can go ahead and turn to your Bible, Mark chapter 3, we're at verse 7 through 35. <clears throat> now I have to admit, um, I bit off way more than I could chew here. This, is, uh, this was too much for one meeting, so we're going to talk fast, so I need you guys to extra zone in, okay? So we're going we're gonna to move fast, because this is, uh, just to admit that to you, is more than I should have taken in one meeting here, okay? So, I need you to zone in as we move fast here. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll get into some things. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. God, I pray. God, I praise you for a time to worship you through song. Thank you, God, for letting us sing to you that there's no one else like you. There's none. None but you, Lord. God, all our delights in you, God. I praise you for letting us just sing these songs to you. You're worthy of praise, God. Just glorious praise. And God, I just pray that you would continue that now, that you would use my weak mind and weak voice and everyone else here, God, just to worship you as your, your word is proclaimed. God, I pray that you would give everyone here, God, just, just a mind to, to, hear, to hear your word read and to hear your word proclaimed and, to, and to, to, to think on how great you are, Lord Jesus. God, open our eyes to see you. Thank you, Lord, for this portion of Scripture. Thank you for letting us be here. God, I, I believe that you are sovereign and that you know all things and that you knew that we'd be right here today and that every person in this room would be here. So, God, I just ask you that you would bless this time. Bless this time as your word is preached. Help me, God. I need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, so what we're going to see in this passage before we even read anything we're going to see a lot of um, ideas about who Jesus is. Uh, we're going to see bad ideas and a lot of wrong ideas about who Jesus is and a little bit of good ideas about who he is. That's the reason why at the, the top of your page there, the, the title says, What Do You Think of Jesus? What do you think of Jesus? Because we're going to get a lot of opinions here in this passage. Uh, let me give you a quick quote from A.W. Tozer. This is this pretty popular quote of his. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So when you think about God, whatever comes into your mind, according to A.W. Tozer, is the most important thing about you. Let me reword that slightly. I'm going to reword it a little bit. What comes into our minds when we think about Jesus is the most important thing about us. I'll just reword it slightly. What comes to your mind when you think about Christ Jesus it's the most important thing about you. It's, it's, a, it's a big deal. And what this passage is going to do is show you some people that had some bad ideas about Christ and, and uh, very few that had some good ideas about Christ. The different views of Jesus you see in this passage, uh, we'll read through it in consecutively in just a moment. But verse 21, uh, you're going to see that his family thought he was crazy. He thought he was out of his mind. You're going to see in verse 22, scribes and Pharisees thought he was an evil liar. And then when he casts out demons, that was actually work of Satan, not a work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you're going to see people come to him, multitudes, they're going to treat him like a circus act. They just want to be there to see fireworks, to see healings. They only go to him for physical healing. They're uninterested in spiritual healing in Christ Jesus himself. All they want is the physical and to see fireworks. But then as, you, as we get this careful reading of this section, we got these bad ideas, but we're also going to see Jesus as the sovereign merciful Lord and Savior of us all. And I'm praying that God will do that. And I ask you during this time that you would be 
shooting up little prayers like we talk about often while the Word of God is being proclaimed. It's a time of worship. That you would worship Jesus as we see who He is in His Word. So what about you? What comes to your mind when you think about Jesus? What comes to your mind? What's there? And let this passage instruct you. Let this passage move you to see Christ for who, who He is. Okay, we're going to read verses 7 through 12. We're just going to read it in sections, okay? So verses 7 through 12, I'm just going to read this section first. So read along with me. But Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee followed Him, and from Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things He was doing, came to Him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. So let me give, begin with that first phrase right there. The first phrase in verse 7 says, But Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea. Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea. I encourage you, never underestimate a little phrase like that. The Scripture's packed full of treasure. It's just packed, okay? And so don't underestimate this little phrase, this first phrase. Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea. So why did He do that? Why did he do that? If you look back into verse 6, as we ended last week, we realized that the Pharisees and the Herodians had come together and they're ready to kill Christ. They're out to destroy him. Therefore, Jesus withdraws. He withdraws to the sea. Now, why do you think he did that? You think he was scared? No. He was not scared. Never forget that whenever, remember the people came to get Jesus? They came to get him to go crucify him. Multitudes, a whole mob of people they came, they had clubs, and they had swords. And if you read that section in John 18, it says Jesus went forward. He didn't, he didn't wait, he didn't hide, and they found Him. He actually went forward and addressed them in John 18. And He says, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus. And when He said, I am, they all fell back, all these men with swords and clubs. He's not scared. It's not why He withdraws. He's not scared of the attacks of men. So why does He withdraw in this situation? It's not that he's scared, but it is that he is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. He knows that his time has not yet come. When you read through the scriptures, you realize, and you see Jesus saying this, my time has not yet come. My time has yet not yet come. Christ Jesus came to the earth to die. He came to die for the sins of his people. And this thing had been planned out by Christ since before time began, that there was an hour he would come and he would die. And he knew that that time was not yet. So this is not exalted. The fact that Jesus is scared it exalts His sovereignty. Christ Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea. Now you see in this passage that Jesus was well known on earth. In fact, that was the, the title for this section. He's Jesus, well known on earth, well known in hell. He's well known on earth. Jesus did not live out His life in an obscure place on the earth, an obscure little corner, okay? He, did not, he didn't live out His life in isolation. Jesus' fame spread far and wide. If you look with me, just try to imagine the scene as we look back at verse 7. Just imagine the scene here. A great multitude from Galilee followed him. That's a bunch of people. 
So here's Jesus, okay? He retreats back to the sea, and a whole bunch of people from this region called Galilee, that's northern Israel, they follow him. So he's got these people there, great multitudes. Next part says, and from Judea. If you think about all of Israel, you've got the northern part is Galilee, and you've got the southern part is Judea. And he said people are coming from all over Israel to follow Jesus. This is a big crowd. Then it says also from where? From Jerusalem. Verse 8 says, and Jerusalem, the capital city. Usually if people wanted to hear the best religious teaching, they would go to Jerusalem. And now you've got people escaping out of Jerusalem to go see Jesus up north in Galilee. And then it says from Adumea, which I have so much trouble saying. Adumea, you have, you have people coming from there. Which, what you're getting into now is below, outside the borders of Israel, south of Israel, you've got people coming from there. Next place it says there in verse 8, it says from beyond the Jordan. That's east of, that's east of Israel, east of the borders of Israel. Then you have from Tyre and Sidon. That's going north. So you've got people coming together to Jesus from all over Israel, even the capital city, and from all outside the borders of Israel. They're gathering up. This is a massive crowd of people. So if you can imagine, so you, you can think about Jesus living here by the sea. Preaching the gospel, doing miracles. You've got all these people coming to him. Okay, can you imagine it? Droves after droves of people coming in. Maybe some of his disciples say, hey, did you hear? Some people came from Tyre and Sidon yesterday. Yeah, a bunch of people. Did you hear about that? And people just coming in, they're just gathering up around Jesus. Okay, they want to see him. They want to hear from him. And a lot of them want to touch him because they want to be healed. And then you get to verse 9 and it makes you see the picture even bigger. Look at verse 9. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. This crowd had gotten so massive, so massive that he needs a getaway boat in case he gets crushed by this mob of people trying to press in. If you read verse 10, it says they pressed in on him, trying to, just trying to touch him. So he needed a getaway boat. You see this? And I've had some experience with this. I remember, in fact, it was me and Dustin went to a... A concert one time. Uh, this is a long time ago. We were lost at the time. We we're at this concert, and I'm actually on crutches, which is not a good idea. And I'm down at the in the you know where everybody is, where the multitudes of people are standing up, and I'm down there, and you know you got people going over the head doing the what's that thing called? Crowd surfing. That's it. Crowd surfing. You got all this stuff going on, and I'm on these crutches, and the only thing I can, I'm not even listening to the music. All I can think is I can't fall down because they're going to trample me right now. I cannot. And so this is the picture I have in my mind. All these people gathered around Jesus. You see this? And he says, give me, a, give me a boat back there, lest they crush me. So can you see this scene? Can you grab hold of this scene, pressing into Christ? Now, what can we learn from this? I'm going to get into something quickly here. You cannot ignore Jesus. Multitudes of people were amazed by him. Multitudes of people hated him. You cannot ignore him. All his actions were calculated. I'm talking about people seeing all his actions. What do I mean by that? Remember chapter 2? People said, what are you doing eating in, center, in sinners and tax collectors' houses? Well, how'd they know he was doing that? Because they're all up in his business. All the time. Why are your disciples plucking heads of grain? How'd they know they were doing that? Because every move of Jesus is being calculated. He's got multitudes of people around him. They see everything he's doing. You can't ignore this one. You cannot ignore Christ. You can't be indifferent toward him. You have to be opinionated about Jesus. Either he is who he said he is and you bow down and worship him as King Jesus and God or he's a liar. 
And you hate Him for what He's done, deceiving multitudes of people. But you, you cannot be neutral. You cannot be indifferent towards Jesus. And specifically, let me give you something specific. You cannot be indifferent toward the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Okay? You cannot ignore the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' life, His death, and His resurrection, I'm talking about eyewitnesses. People saw everything. People saw what was going on. His fame had spread far and wide. Now, I want you to think about this, okay? Think if an unknown person, an unknown person claims to have died, and he claims to have risen from the dead. How would you check his claim? How would you check his, his claim to have risen from the dead? How would you check his claim that he actually died and he is actually walking on earth again? And this is where this kicks in. Christ Jesus was not an unknown person. Okay, crowds overwhelmed him, watched his every move. He had witnesses all through his life at his death and at his resurrection. You can't ignore the death and resurrection of Jesus. You can't do it. I want you to think about this. The difference between an unknown person dying and the president of the United States dying. Can you think about this with me? An unknown person dies and very few people know about it and even fewer know where he's buried. President of the United States dies, very famous. Everybody all across the world knows about it. And people watch the car go by and they see where he's buried. Everybody knows. Now if somebody, if some of his friends, the, the unknown person, try to fake a resurrection, but they might, they might could do that, right? Okay? But if somebody tries to fake a resurrection of the President of the United States, what could they do? No, we saw him. We saw him walk. We saw him die. We saw where he was buried. You could go dig his body up and show the body and say he had not risen from the dead. Now, why am I telling you this? Because this gives us insight into Jesus. You cannot ignore the death and resurrection of Jesus. He had multitudes around him calculating his every move. Eyewitnesses that saw his death. Eyewitnesses that saw him hanging on a cross. In fact, in Luke chapter 24, you have a man named Cleopas. And he says, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know that what happened in these days? His death was famous. And after this famous death, everybody knew where he was buried. And if he, and if he had not really come out of that tomb, why did his enemies not just go get the body and say, here's the body, he's not risen from the dead. Because Christ Jesus has risen indeed. And there's multitudes of eyewitnesses all around. You can't ignore the death and the resurrection of King Jesus. Now, I was talking to a guy one time. And this is where this really impacts me, okay? I was talking to a guy at Heinz and Rankin. Uh, and as I was talking to him, I asked him, you know, I asked him if, if he knew the Lord, if he knew God. And he said, no, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. And so I began to ask him, so have you considered the, the resurrection of Jesus and the eyewitnesses, the, the multitude of eyewitnesses that saw him? Have you considered that? And he said, no. And I just looked really surprised. I said, I can't believe you've already come to your decision. You've not considered the resurrection of Jesus and eyewitnesses. Okay? This is a big deal. This is exactly what Paul was doing. If you read Acts 26, Paul goes before a, go a governor and a king. And he's preaching that Christ Jesus died for our sins and that he rose from the dead. And then the governor speaks up and says, Paul, you've lost your mind. You've lost your mind. And here's what he says. This is Paul's response. I'm not out of my mind, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. This stuff was not done in a corner. He's got multitudes from all over Israel. He's got multitudes from outside of Israel coming around him, calculating his every move. A famous death. Everybody knew where he was buried. Where's the body? 
Where's the body? He had risen from the dead. He had risen from the dead. You can't ignore it. Jesus is well known on earth. I pray he'd be well known among us. Secondly, he was well known in hell. This is verse 11 and 12. He was well known in hell. So try to imagine the scene again. Try to think about the scene here, okay? Droves and droves of people coming in. Can you see it? Just, just drove after drove of people coming in. Imagine the sounds of the crowd. The deep rumble as everybody interacts with one another. Can you hear the sounds of the crowd? Except maybe when Jesus comes out to speak and you got this hush that comes over the crowd. And right in the middle of that, you see verse 11 and 12. And what it says in verse 11 and 12 is, is, let me read it. And an unclean spirit, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out saying, you are the son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. Now, we see this throughout the Gospels, right? Now, and if you read this, this is not saying a one-time event. This says the unclean spirits, plural, spirits. This means this was happening again and again. All these crowds of people, and again and again, demon-possessed people coming before Him, hitting their face, hitting their face and saying, you're the Son of God, and Jesus sternly warning them to keep silent because He doesn't want testimony from wickedness. So over and over again, and over and over again, you see this throughout the Gospels. Demons falling down before Jesus in fear. Over and over again, they confess Him as the Holy One. They confess Him as, the, as right here, the Son of God. Over and over again, He silences them. Jesus is well known in the mind of Satan, and He's well known in the mind of His demons. In fact, they tremble before Him. They absolutely tremble before King Jesus. They're probably something like, if you've read uh, the story about uh, Jericho, and before Jericho fell, remember that the people of Israel coming up to Jericho? And then we get wind of what the people in Jericho were thinking. They had heard about what God did for the Israelites. And so what were the people in Jericho thinking? They were thinking this. This is in Joshua chapter 2. As soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone, in anyone because of you. That's amazing. This is what they think. This is what these demons are thinking when they come before Jesus. And right here, this is amazing. The unclean spirits do not do this for everyone. Do you realize that? The unclean spirits, don't, they, the spirits, they don't treat, the deceiving spirits, they don't treat everyone like this. If you read Acts 19, you've got the seven sons of Sceva. And they try to cast a demon out of a man. And they end up getting beat down. Harmed badly. The unclean spirit did not listen to them. And you even have an example here in Mark, in our book, in Mark chapter 9, where, there, where the same people who in Mark chapter 6, Jesus said, I give you authority to cast out, to, to have authority over unclean spirits and cast them out. A few chapters later in Mark 9, He says they, they couldn't cast one out. And they said, why couldn't we cast it out? Why couldn't we cast it out? These demons, they don't react the same to everyone. So the seven sons of Sceva were no match for these demons, for these unclean spirits. Even the 12 had to say, why couldn't we cast it out? But it's like they just come before. It's like they just enter into the presence of King Jesus and they begin to tremble and they hit their face and they confess, that's the Son of God. Full of fear. Quick application on this. Do you, how aware are you? How aware are you of spiritual warfare? How much is spiritual warfare in front of your eyes? Jesus refers to the armies of hell as the devil and his angels. The devil and his angels. How aware of you of spiritual warfare and deceiving spirits? Do not be ignorant of his schemes. Of Satan or his schemes. He walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
Ephesians says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Do not be ignorant of the enemy. Don't be ignorant of that. So what must we do? It seems like the safest place, as I read this passage we're in today, the safest place in the world to be, when you think about spiritual warfare, is right next to King Jesus. Where all the demons come before and they tremble and they fall down they, and, the, and they cry out, this is the Holy One. And I've got good news, brothers and sisters. Christ Jesus in you, the hope of glory. Christ Jesus in you, He's in you. The one before whom you can be safe, He's in you and He's the hope of glory. So fight. Fight spiritual battles, spiritual warfare with all your confidence in King Jesus who is the head of all principality and power according to Colossians 2.10. And who has disarmed. He's disarmed principalities and powers having made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in the cross according to Colossians chapter 2 verse 15. Okay, let's go to the next section. Mark 3 verse 13 through 19. We're going to read this section. Mark 3, 13 through 19. <clears throat> and he, that's Jesus. And he went up on a mountain, on the mountain, and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal, sick, heal sicknesses, to cast out demons. Simon, to whom the, he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. Okay, so Jesus right here, so think about what just happened. He's, Jesus calls his disciples, okay? Right in the middle of this scene, Jesus goes into a mountain and then he calls his disciples in this next scene. So Jesus has the multitudes at his fingertips. He's got the multitudes at his fingertips. And what does he do? Does he become the first pastor of a mega church? Or create programs to meet everyone's needs? What does he do? He's got the multitudes at his fingertips. And what does he do? It says he gets by himself with God the Father and he prays. If you read the cross reference in Luke 6, 12, it says he prays all night to God. He gets, what does he do with all the multitudes at his fingertips? He goes into the mountain, gets by himself and prays all night to God according to Luke 6, 12 in our passage here. And then he comes down and he chooses 12 men for himself. And he calls these men to himself, 12 men whom he would disciple. So Mark 3.13 right there says, And he went up to the mountain. He spent all night in prayer to God. How important was this aspect of Jesus' ministry? This make disciples. How important was this? It was important enough to constitute an all night prayer vigil. What about you? How, how important? Let's make a quick application. How important is this to you to make disciples? I've heard many people here say things like, like, I want to make disciples, but I can't seem to win, in by any, win anyone to Jesus. Or, I want to make disciples, but I can't find a, a, a man or woman to build into. I, I want to, but I... 
And I hear what you're saying, but, but let me ask you this. In light of what Jesus has done here, has this ever kept you up at night? Has this ever kept you up at night praying? Has the Great Commission been so loud in your ear that you could not sleep, so you stayed up crying out to God to give me souls? Mark 3.13 says he went up to the mountain, and then it says, and he called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. So Jesus chooses 12 men to be his disciples. Now he would go on to spend more time with these 12 men than anybody else. More time with these 12 men than anybody else. They would be with him in his closed door moments. They would be with him on the boat, going across the Sea of Galilee. They would see him calm the sea. They would see him walk on water. They would be with him in prayer. They'd be with him there. They would be with him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's got these agonizing prayers before he goes to the cross. They got to be with him in these closed door moments. They would actually be the ones going place to place with Jesus and doing ministry. They would hear Jesus teaching the multitudes, but then when they got by themselves with Christ, they would get more intimate instruction. That's what these disciples got. More intimate instruction and detailed instruction outside of the multitudes. Listen to Mark 4.34. But without a parable, He did not speak to them. So Jesus didn't speak to the multitudes without a parable, it says here. And when they were alone, that's Him and His disciples, when they were alone, He explained all things to His disciples. Now how awesome is this? Christ Jesus has the multitudes at His very whim. And then what does He do? He turns in on these 12 men and He pours His life into them. He pours His life on earth into these 12 men. Now, how do you think that made them feel? Loved? Undeserving? Do you know Christ still does, does this? The Lord of all creation? The King of heaven and earth? He still looks at his disciples and he wants he wants to, he looks to not just y'all but you as an individual. Galatians 2:20 Paul said, "Christ loved me and gave himself for me." He uses an individual singular term there. Christ loved me. You know you can say, "Has that ever gripped you?" That the king of the universe who has the multitudes, he's sovereign over the hearts of all the multitudes and he looks at you. He can look at an individual and say, "I love you." And I gave myself for you. He could do that. That ought to grip us. You're not just a number in the crowd. The one who rules all nations says to you, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And whoever hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him. This ought to grip us. Now, why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus call 12 men to himself? Why would he call 12 men to himself? And let me say a few things. In one sense, he called 12 men to himself because this is a very unique, uh, amazing ministry that these men are about to walk into in the history of the church. That's one sense. In another sense, Jesus is modeling for us what it looks like to make disciples. Because later on, he's going to command us to make disciples. So why does he call 12 men to himself? In one sense, you've got this special, unique role that these 12 men would play or these men would play. The 11 minus 1, actually. And also to mirror for us, to model for us what it looks like to do what He commands us to do later on in the Scriptures, which is make disciples. Okay, so you've got these two things. Let me, let me hit one first. Okay, in one sense, it's a very special role in Jesus' church. What do I mean by that? 
They would be called apostles. Mark 3.14 right here in the ESV actually says, whom he also named apostles. Some of your versions don't say that, but if you look, look at the cross-reference in Luke 6.13, he chose 12 whom he also named apostles. This was a very unique place in the church, apostles. It was never again, what this role that they had was never again to be repeated. That's the reason you should be very skeptical when somebody comes up to you and introduces themselves as Billy Bob, the apostle. You should be skeptical of that guy. Okay? Ephesians 2.20 says this about apostles. He says, he sets them up as the foundation of the church. Listen to this. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. You read Revelation 21, it says that these men's names are written on the 12 foundation of that holy city in heaven. That's unique. That's very unique. There were certain requirements that they had to meet to be considered an apostle in this sense. And, and one of those requirements was an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. That would be eyewitnesses to Jesus. And you see that in Acts chapter 1 as they're trying to elect another one to replace, uh, to replace Judas. And this ought to be, these men would eventually write scripture. They would be the source of scripture, okay? This is a big deal, very unique role right here. And it ought to encourage the dog out of you that God takes these weak and uh, ordinary men and uses them for such a massive purpose in the history of his church. That would be a big encouragement to you. And let me move to the other. Okay, so in one sense, you've got that special role. In another sense, Jesus, like I said, he calls 12 to himself. Why? He's modeling for us what it looks like to make disciples. So, so let your life and your ministry, let it be informed. Let your ministry be informed by what you see Jesus doing right here. Okay. How will you most effectively spread the gospel and advance the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth? How will you do that? Do what Jesus did. Make disciples. Jesus had vast multitudes at his fingertips. And what does he do? Makes disciples. He calls these men to himself. Please don't miss the wisdom of Jesus in this. Don't miss his wisdom. We might think, wouldn't it be wiser just to crowd up as many people as you can get together, as many people, and preach to them all at once? Wouldn't that be the wisest thing? Don't give in to worldly wisdom. Don't give in. Don't, don't lean on your own understanding, as Proverbs 3 says. But instead, look at Christ. Look at his life. He makes disciples and turns the world upside down. Now, who are these men? Who are these men? That, who are these 12 men that Jesus disciples right here? Just ordinary men, fishermen, tax collectors, it says. Men from a lowly place called Galilee, the land of the shadow of death, it calls in Isaiah 9. Just lowly men. Be encouraged by that. We ought to be so encouraged that God uses 12 ordinary, lowly men. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 27. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put, to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the insignificant things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. Be encouraged by this. This is what God does. He takes insignificant Weak people, and he uses them for his glory. Ordinary people. Do you believe this? Do you believe? Do you guys, do, do we believe that God would take ordinary people like us and use him for his glory and use us for his glory? Do you believe that? 
Because I see it right here in the scriptures of these fishermen and these tax collectors. Now, what exactly did Jesus do with these men? What did he do with these men? Well, you, you look at verse 14, you see it. It says, that they might be with him. You see that? He got these men to be with him and that he might send them out to preach with authority. But just let me take these two titles here. That they might be with him and that he might send them out. Those two things, okay? And in that order, the disciples of Jesus, be with Jesus, be sent out by Jesus, okay? Jesus wanted these men with him. He did not send them to a class to be taught. They were with him learning. He didn't send them to, to learn ministry experience, but it's, he didn't send them to a class to learn ministry strategies, but instead they were with him doing ministry. Jesus did not send them to a prayer class, but they were with him and prayed with him. He taught them how to pray by bringing them into his prayer life. Classes don't make disciples. Programs don't make disciples, but men and women transformed by Jesus make disciples. Men and women who have been with Jesus, okay? They were with him at mealtimes. They were eating and drinking with Jesus. They, Jesus wanted them, he loved these men. John 13, 1 says he loved them till the end. He wanted them with him and he loved them and he loved them till the very end. In fact, as you read through this list that we read just a moment ago, you see Jesus nicknaming these men. That's pretty awesome. He looks at Simon and says, rock or stone. He looks at the, uh, John, James and John and says, bow and urge me, sons of thunder. There's an enemy. You feel an intimacy in that? He nicknamed these men. He loved these men. He wanted these men to be with him. He wanted these men with him. And not only did he want them with him, but what else? He had a plan in mind that as these men came with him, that he would send them out. Making disciples. Jesus would have them with him, and he would send them out. He's modeling discipleship at the very heart of his discipleship strategy. We see, bring them into your life. Teach them. Train them. Love them. And with a mindset to send them out to preach the gospel and make more disciples. You see it right here. You've got Jesus' words in John 17, 18. Jesus is praying to his Father, and he says this. I, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Having been with Jesus, they can now go out with power and with authority. They were with him. And they were sent out by him. Okay, now let me make a quick application here on this. Okay, quick application before we move on. Uh, with Jesus and sent out in that order. You hear me saying that? In that order. With Jesus and sent out by Jesus. We are called by God to be sent out to minister, to go and labor and serve the Lord. We're called by God to do that. But we are to do ministry from a place of fullness. Do you see that? From a place of being with Jesus. In the secret place, in the Word, being with Christ, and from a place of fullness, go out for His glory and for His namesake. This is what we see in the life of the disciples in Acts. Acts chapter 4. You've got these disciples that are doing ministry, right? And listen to Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus and empowered by Jesus, working out of fullness for His glory. To be doing ministry, to be doing service to God, ministry, 
and not spending time with Jesus is very unhealthy. Catch this practical application. It's very unhealthy. Think of the story of Martha and Mary, right? Luke chapter 10. Martha's doing her thing, serving. Mary's sitting at His feet listening to His Word. Jesus corrects Martha. Jesus commends Mary for sitting at His feet listening to His Word and said that she did the one thing needful. She did the one thing needful. Now I know this sounds very basic, but I can't... Just listen to me for a minute. This sounds very basic. Be with Jesus and out of fullness go do ministry. Sounds basic, but I cannot tell you how many times that I've had people, not just from here, but people in general, come to me with things that they're struggling with. Ministry things. Ministry to their wives or husbands. Ministry to their children. Ministry at their workplace. Gospel preaching ministry. Disciple making. They're just struggling. They say, I'm just struggling in this. And as I dig down and I get trying to get to the root of some of these things, over and over again, what I find is what's being neglected is sitting in his feet listening to his word. Being with Jesus and from a place of fullness doing ministry for his glory. I find that being neglected again and again and again. Beware of this. Are you spending enough? Are you spending sufficient amounts of time with Jesus and his word? Are you spending sufficient amounts of time with Jesus in prayer? Are you sitting at his feet listening to his word? Now, let me give the, okay, let me give the other side of that. So, doing stuff without being with Jesus. Now, let me give the other side of that. What about, what about spending time with Jesus and yet never being sent out for ministry? This is very unhealthy. In other words, your, your time with him, you have time with him, but you never do. This is very unhealthy in the same sort of way. Think of Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah 58, you got these people that are fasting and praying. They're fasting and praying, and yet the Lord comes against them because they're not doing anything. Listen to Isaiah 58, 6. Is this not the fast that I've chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo heavy burdens? To let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke? Which, by the way, that's done by care, mainly by carrying the gospel into a lost world. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? That you bring into your house the poor who are cast out when you see the naked that you cover him. To be spending time with Jesus in the word and in prayer and it never catching feet and going and acting on these things is very unhealthy and it's very dangerous and deceitful. Listen to James 1.22. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You deceive yourself. Why? Because you, you, you're, you're getting it in the brain and it seems like you're knowing some things and, but you're doing nothing about it. It's very unhealthy. It's very dangerous. So I say, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters in Christ, be with Jesus like His disciples right here in Mark 3 and be sent out to do ministry for His glory and for His namesake. Never neglect time with Him. Let His words, the Bible, become your intimate friend. Learn to love to spend time with God in a secret place in prayer and then let ministry just explode on this world for His glory. Next section. Mark 3, verse 20 through the end of the chapter here, okay? Now we're going to read this. Now I, want you to, I want you to look for something. You've seen the crowds that just want to see fireworks. You've seen that. You've seen some about His disciples. Now there's going to be some people here that think He's crazy. There's going to be some people here that think he's satanic. Okay? And then there's going to be a right view of God. So I want you to look for it. Look for that as we read it. Look at verse 20. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. Verse 21. 
But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him. For they said he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub. And, and by the ruler of the demons, he cast out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man and then he will plunder his house. Assure that I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside they sent to him, calling him, and a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered, he answered them, saying, Who is my mother and my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Okay, first point here. His family's view of him was what? Jesus' family's view of him was he was out of his mind. He was insane. He was a lunatic. He's crazy. That's the idea. That's what they thought about him, at least at this time, okay? Now, it's very unlikely. What you have here, if you read verse 20, the multitude came together again, excuse me, verse 21, when his own people, that's talking about his family, his own people, heard about this, they went to lay hold of him. So they leave their place in Nazareth, and they start heading toward where Jesus is by the sea. And then when you get to verse 31, they make it. Then his brothers and his mother came and standing outside. So you got his brothers and his mother here, okay? Okay, so you got the mother of Jesus, Mary, and his brothers, which are listed over in Mark 6, their names. So, so you got these, his families here, right? Now, it's unlikely that his mother, Mary, thought that he was crazy. It's very unlikely. And here's why I say that. She heard the prophecies of the angels. She heard the prophecy of Simeon about Christ. She experienced having a baby while she was a virgin. That's a big one. She had pondered these things in her heart. She'd been pondering these things in her heart. And remember in John chapter 2, she was the one, one kind of urging Jesus to turn the water into wine. Okay? Very unlikely that she actually thought she was crazy. But it's very obvious that his brothers thought he had lost his mind. These would have been his younger half-brothers, same mother, but obviously not the same father since Jesus was born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. But they did not believe in Jesus. John chapter 7 verse 5 says this. Even his brothers did not believe in him. These brothers thought he was crazy. They didn't believe him. Now do you understand why they would have thought he was crazy? Can you understand why they, his brothers would have thought he was crazy? Other than the fact that he was pure and perfect light. And he's the older brother of a bunch of darkness. Other than that, can you think of why he would have been crazy? I mean, why they would have thought he was crazy? I want you to think about this, okay? He had made his living for several years as a carpenter, and now he leaves all that. He leaves that to go to John the Baptist, who, who's eating locusts and wild honey, and goes and gets baptized by him. Okay, leaves his profession and goes and does that, okay? Now, these unbelieving brothers, they hear stories. They hear things. They don't believe it, but they hear that when that happened, the sky ripped apart and a, and, and a voice came out of heaven and said, this is my beloved son. This is the son of God. 
They think it's crazy. They don't believe this stuff. Okay? They hear that, that Jesus has been calling men to follow him, to be his disciples, even though he has no formal training as a, as a rabbi. They're hearing about this stuff, okay? They, they hear that he's going from town to town, commanding people to repent and believe in the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. They, these unbelieving brothers, they hear that he's healing people, that he's casting out demons, and that he's ticked off all the religious authorities who want to kill him now. They're worried about him. They think that he has lost his mind. They don't believe him. And this was probably the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. They hear that he is claiming to be God himself, able to forgive sins, like in Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. They're hearing this stuff, and then they hear that all the crowds are starting to follow him. It's just this big following of people, and they're gathered up so much that according to verse 20, they don't even have time to eat. It's affecting their diet. And they think he's going mad, and they want to go... And do like a, it says seize him here. It's literally to take hold of him. Or it's like the word to arrest him. They want to go get him. This is a serious family intervention that they're trying to go after. Okay? Now, this again, I'll say this quickly. This again should be a great reminder to us that the, that the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus cannot be ignored. It can't be ignored. Now, why am I saying that? Okay? Jesus's family, these people, they would eventually look at Jesus and they would bow down and worship him. Can you imagine convincing a mother to bow down, a mother bowing down before a son and worshiping him? Can you imagine brothers that don't believe in, believe him bowing down before their brother and worshiping him? Can you imagine that? Willingly doing that? The same brothers who were unbelieving Okay, the same brothers that, that are derogatory toward him, calling him crazy or mad, they would eventually write, they, they would eventually lead the churches that worship Jesus. They would eventually write letters like James okay, and, and, and uh, Jude. They would write those letters. And if you read the first verse in those letters, they don't refer to their brother as brother. They say, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, what could have done that? You might could convince, well, you probably can't convince vast multitudes that you are God in the flesh here to save the world. You probably can't convince vast multitudes, but you definitely cannot convince your own mother and your own brothers who don't believe you. How are you going to convince them? They've seen everything. They know everything. Unless you're really God in the flesh who's come to save the world. This is another reminder that you cannot ignore the death and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Let me give a real quick question here. Quick question, okay? If Jesus' own family thought he was crazy, what do you think people might possibly say about you? Do you think that they might, if they called him Beelzebub, surely they would call you the same, right? That's what Jesus said in Matthew 10. If they called him crazy, you think they'll call you that as you devote yourself to the Lord? And if they will, you better get over your desires to be accepted by this world if you're going to follow Jesus. You better get over your obsession with pleasing other people if you're going to follow Jesus. You better get over your idols of self-esteem and self-image if you're going to follow Jesus because they may call you crazy. Acts 26, verse 24, Paul, this is what he said to Paul. You are out of your mind. The governor said that to Paul. And I, I can just... I can just imagine Paul thinking something like this. First Thessalonians 2, 4. 
We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Even so, we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Who cares what they think? Who cares what they think? That's his family's view of him, okay? What about the scribes' view of him? It's found in verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons he cast out demons. Okay, they were charging Jesus with being satanic. Jesus, by the power of the Spirit of God, is casting out demons. And they said, that's, that's because he has Satan. He has the ruler of demons. And by the ruler of demons, he's casting out demons. Now, who are these people? It calls them in verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. Again, these would have been the top religious authorities, top religious leaders, right? Uh, they came down to, uh, they, they see all these people leaving Jerusalem to go see Jesus, and they've come to see what's going on and probably put water on the fire of Jesus' ministry. That's what they're there to do. And, and just think of the glaring words. Listen to the glaring words here. He has Beelzebub by the ruler of demons. He cast out demons. They take the very motivation of Jesus. Instead of it being love and compassion of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Almighty God, instead of that, no, no, it's, it's actually Jesus is motivated by Satan himself. Deceit and hatred is the idea. Okay, now, what was Jesus' response to these religious leaders? I love this, okay? This was awesome to me. Just this whole response from verse 23 all the way to verse uh, 29, the response of Jesus to these, to these men, okay? This is awesome. If you look at his response, the first thing you see is his awesome boldness. Now, why, why do I say that? When you're looking at verse 23, does Jesus back down from these men? Does he quiver under their attacks? No. What does it say? So he called them to himself. <laughs> I love that. He calls them to himself. There's all these crowds are gathered around and this voice comes out of the crowd and says, he has Beelzebub. And Jesus says, step up. Don't hide behind the crowd. Step up. Come out of the crowd and let me answer you. He calls them out. Come over here. And then as you keep reading, you see Jesus uses three points to address them. Number one, he uses logic to show the stupidity of their accusation. That's verse 23 to 26. After that, Jesus uses, a, he gives an explanation of the reason he cast out demons. That's found in verse 27. And then he lays out a very serious warning to them. And that's found in verses 28 and 29. So let's hit, hit these, okay? First thing Jesus does, he uses logic. That's verse 23 to 26 right there. He's using logic, okay? Now, pretty much, he's just exposing how ridiculous this accusation is that Christ has Beelzebub, and by, the, by Satan, he's casting out Satan. It's ridiculous. Listen to his first question. How can Satan cast out Satan? In other words, are you, are you guys saying that Satan's casting himself out? Like he's grabbing himself and throwing himself out? This is silly. That's what he's telling. This is actually silly. This is dumb. This is a bad accusation. He goes on to say in verse uh, 26, Satan, if Satan has risen up against himself, in other words, do you really believe that Jesus, I mean, uh, Satan is fighting against himself? This is crazy. Okay. It's absurd to think that Satan would go around messing up his own kingdom. Okay, so he just starts off with logic and says, this is just a ridiculous idea. Now, secondly, what does Jesus do? He explains the reason for his ex exorcisms, or that means casting out demons. He explains the reason. That's found in verse 27. So we're going to get an illustration. 
I want you to zone in on this illustration. Jesus gives an illustration about why he's going around casting out demons out of these people. Okay, listen to verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man and then he will plunder his house. Now let me give you a cross reference. Luke, this is a parallel passage. Luke eleven twenty one says this. When a strong man, same illustration, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when, when, when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Okay. So understand the illustration here. Okay, The illustration said you've got a man guarding his stuff. But not just any man, you've got a strong man guarding his stuff. And not just any strong man, but a strong man with armor, according to Luke 11, guarding his goods and guarding his stuff, and that represents Satan. Okay? Then you have a stronger man stepping up to the strong man and binding him, and that represents Jesus. He binds him, meaning in the illustration, in the illustration it means he ties him up. He chains him up. And after this strong man has chained him up, he begins to take all his stuff away. So Jesus describes himself like this. This is what he's describing, his, his uh, exorcisms here. He describes himself as going, just walking right up into Satan's own house, into his own territory, binding him up, putting him, putting him to an open shame, and taking all his goods. Do you realize what Jesus has done? If you take this illustration, you put it in reality. Do you realize what Christ Jesus has done? Satan is called in John 12, 31, the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he's called the God of this age. Satan is called the ruler of this world, the God of this age. And he commands unheard of, unheard of numbers of unclean spirits, deceiving spirits, demons. They lie, they deceive, they possess all of the world. He commands, this ruler of demons commands unheard of amounts of unclean and deceiving spirits. And this world is called the present evil age. Galatians chapter 4, chapter 1, verse 4. The world, according to 1 John 5, 19, lies under the sway of the wicked one. So just get the setting here, okay? The whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. Present evil age. He's the God of this age and He commands unheard numbers unheard numbers of principalities and powers. This is what's going on and then what does Jesus do? Christ Jesus steps right in the midst of a dark world that lies under Satan's sway. Christ Jesus steps right into a world infested with demonic activity. Christ Jesus steps right up to the ruler of it all, right up to Satan himself and chains him up like a dog and starts taking his stuff. Amen. And those that are delivered from demonic possession or just those that are taken out of darkness into his marvelous light were possessions of Satan and you were taken by force by Jesus. 1 John 3, 8 says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. In this illustration, Jesus is not on the defense. He's on the attack. He's going into his house, into his territory. He's on the attack. Ought not the church of Jesus have the same mindset? 
What puts us in a defensive posture sometimes? What does that? And not fighting and battling and getting after it. What, what puts us there? Should we not be like our Lord and be on the attack? Matthew 6, 18. He says this, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That's an attack verse. I will build up my church and the gates of Hades, which is where we're going, will not prevail against it. Where are the soldiers for Jesus? The fighters for Jesus? Where are they at? Thirdly. Okay, so you've got Jesus shows them by logic it's nonsense. Jesus shows them the reason through an illustration. And now right here in verses 28 and 29, Jesus is going to give a very, very strong warning. Very strong warning. Let's read verse 28. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. This is often referred to as the unpardonable sin. Often referred to as the unforgivable sin. Jesus starts it off by saying, Oh, surely I say to you, or truly I say to you. That phrase is used by Jesus pretty often to, to make a point, an emphasis. In other words, He wants them to know that their, their logic is ridiculous. And He wants them to know the reason that He's like the stronger than Satan plundering His goods. He wants them to know that, but He really wants them to walk away. Oh, surely I say to you, Truly, because of a truth, I want you to know this right here. He wants to lay out this warning. He wants them to walk away with this warning. And the warning is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He tells them that sins and blasphemies of all can be forgiven. He says they can be forgiven. That's the reason why Jesus came to die on the cross to forgive us of our sins. But he says right here, he warns these people that they're creeping up real close to a sin by which they will never be forgiven. An eternal sin. That receives eternal condemnation, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, is there such thing as an unpardonable or an unforgivable sin? Is there such a thing? Yes, he, it's right here in our verse, he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Before we even get into details about what that is, do you feel the weight of that? Have you ever felt the weight of that? Do you feel the weight of the fact that multitudes of people are going to enter into eternity and never receive forgiveness, but always be under the wrath of God forever and ever and ever? Do you feel the weight of that? They'll be buried under the weight of condemnation for all of eternity. Their suffering and their pain and their misery, it will never, ever end. And that's really clear in this verse. There's people like that. Even that don't, don't, do, don't do this particular sin. Okay, there's people that will will be in hell forever. This is a horrible thing. Eternity without forgiveness. Horrible. Now, do you realize that some people have committed a sin so grievous, so grievous to God that they are without hope while walking on this earth? Is that not terrifying? It's a horrible thing. And anybody here in their right mind that thinks they might have committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, this should strike terror in your soul. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Now, as I've done a lot of reading on these things and studying myself and reading all this, it really is hard to define. And maybe God does that on purpose. It's hard to define. We've got some context here that helps us see why He's warning them. Okay, that, we don't know for sure if they, 
you know, cross the line into it, but we know he's giving them a stout warning right now. They're creeping up close to it. But it's hard to define, okay? Now, the word blasphemy, it means to slander against or to, to rail against with slanderous words. What we're talking about here is railing against the Holy Spirit with slanderous words, a slander, okay? Now, don't forget, don't take this passage out of its context. If you look at the context, chapter 3, verse 30, why does he warn them of this? Verse 30, because they said he has an unclean spirit. He warns them because they said he has an unclean spirit. Well, what did they say? If you go back and look at verse 22, they said he has Beelzebub. And they said, by the ruler of the demons, he cast out demons. They were beginning to take that which is obviously the work of the Spirit of God through Jesus, and they were starting to attribute that power to Satan himself. They were calling that which is good and calling it bad. They were seeing, what they were seeing happen was obviously the works of God, the works of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus, and yet they were turning around and were getting chillingly close to committing a sin, a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which would relinquish forever all of their opportunities for forgiveness. Now, why would blasphemy against the Holy Spirit have such immovable consequences? Why would it have such immovable consequences? And, and to understand this, I want you to think about this. Think about the diverse roles of the persons of the Godhead in the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Think about the diverse roles that they play. The Father, God the Father, plans redemption. God the Son accomplishes your redemption. And God the Holy Spirit applies the Father's plan and the Son's accomplishment to our hearts. Okay, so think about those roles. The Father plans, Son accomplishes it, the Spirit applies it. Now, the plan that the Father makes is outside of you. And the accomplishment that the, that the Son made at the cross was outside of you. But the application made by the Holy Spirit connects with you. Okay? So keep your mind going. Think about this with me, okay? If you blaspheme against the Father and His plan of redemption, and you blaspheme against the Son and His, His accomplishment of redemption, the Holy Spirit may still humble you to repentance. But if you commit this sin and blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, what hope is there? What's left? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The, the idea here is that you turn away the one, the Spirit of God. You so grieve Him. You turn Him away so much so that, that you never have the one that actually applies redemption to you. See it? Now, think of the specific role of the Holy Spirit in salvation or in redemption. Think about the specific role, okay? What does He do? He brings about conviction of sin, right? He brings up John 16, 8. He convicts the world of sin. That's what He does. Or He does illumination of Christ. The Holy Spirit illuminates who Christ Jesus shows you that He's beautiful and He's glorious. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit because we're so sinful that even if our sin is put right in front of our face, we don't feel the, we don't feel the conviction of it. We need the Holy Spirit to do that. And we're so sinful that even if Jesus, the most clearest demonstra uh, proclamation of the gospel comes to us, we don't get it and we don't see the beauty of it. We need the Holy Spirit to convict us and to illuminate who Jesus is and how beautiful He is. So, therefore... To blaspheme the Holy Spirit 
Okay, to, to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is to, excuse me, is to, is to blaspheme and turn away the one who brings about conviction of sin. So the reason is unforgivable, not necessarily because it's so big, it's unforgivable because the very one that can lead you to salvation through conviction and through illuminating Christ is done. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Let me say this. Any sin that sets you on a path of I can never again have conviction of sin or I never again uh, or I never ever have conviction or never uh, see Christ for who He is is an unforgivable, it's an eternal sin. Now, let me give you another definition here, okay? This is John Piper's definition of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Hear it carefully. I'm going to speak carefully here. John Piper says, An act of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that He withdraws forever with His convicting power so that we are never able to repent and be forgiven. Now notice that He does not give the detail of what is that act of resistance because we do not know. Okay? But He calls it an act of resistance that so belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that there's never an opportunity to repent and believe. Let me give you another commentary. This is from Danny Aiken and David Platt. Uh, this was their definition here, okay? The unpardonable sin, and listen to these words, is to knowingly, because that's what we see in the Scriptures, they knowingly did this. Willingly, that's what they're moving toward, willingly, and persistently. You see them persistently doing this. The unpardonable sin is to knowingly, willingly, and persistently attribute to Satan the works of God done by and in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit who testifies to these truths in your heart. It's kind of weighty, right? That's weighty. So let me ask you this, okay? Have you blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? Have you blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? Now let me throw this out here. Keep this in mind. Don't take this out of its context. Jesus did not say this to apply to some of you here that have sensitive consciences, consciences before God. He, that's not why he pulled this out and said it. He said this to a group of people that were willingly and persistently attributing to Satan. I mean, attributing to Jesus the work of Satan in him. He is satanic. Not to those who are here with sensitive consciences to remind you of some time in the past where you think you might have said something against God. Don't, don't let it come out of its context. Don't fall into that trap by Satan. Okay, that's a trap. Don't fall into that. Now, this, let me say this. Here's something I think I can say with confidence. I can say this with confidence, okay? Listen to this. If you are concerned, if you are concerned that you may have committed the unpardonable sin, you haven't. If you're concerned that you may have committed the unpardonable sin, you haven't. Matthew Henry agrees with me. He said, those who fear they have committed this sin give a good sign that they have not. This is the testimony of commentary after commentary and preacher after preacher and pastor after pastor that those who feel that they may have done it have not done it. Why? Because to walk into this sin means the Holy Spirit departs in such a way that you never feel this conviction. You, you have such a hardness of heart that you never enter into conviction. You never enter in to see Jesus for who He is and be forgiven. Be encouraged by 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. This is Paul. Listen to this. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, I obtained mercy. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Here's the chief of sinners. He calls himself the chief of sinners, the head of all the sinners, he says. And he calls himself a blasphemer. He said, Christ Jesus came to save him. And Paul was saved. Be encouraged by that. Now, last little short snippet here, okay? Now he gives a word of comfort to his disciples. And I love this. This is verse 31 to 35. Last section, verse 31 to 35. Jesus gives a word of comfort to his disciples, okay? Now, imagine this. I'm not going to read it right here. But I want you to imagine this. Imagine they're disciples of Jesus hearing all this. Imagine, imagine some of them have sensitive consciences like some of you do, okay? And they're hearing this stuff about eternal condemnation and eternal sin and never being forgiven and unpardonable sin. And man, maybe there's something coming up over there. Maybe their sensitive consciences are, 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 are hurting them right now. And they're worried. And I love how Jesus concludes this interaction with such a word of comfort and encouragement. His earthly family shows up, and in verse 32, this is, what they, this is what somebody says. The earthly family shows up, and the earthly family gets right up. They get right up to the crowds, but they can't get into Jesus. They get right to the crowds, can't get to Jesus, and then somebody shouts this out. Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And listen to this response by Jesus. I love this. Who is my mother? And my brothers. Now, let me stop there for just a second. This is not being disrespectful toward his family. This is not being cold toward his family. That's not the point here, okay? You remember, his family ended up following him. You remember when Jesus was on the cross, he looked at John and said, Behold, your mother, talking about his mother. Okay, he loved his mother. He loved him. It was not an act of coldness toward them. He's doing this to prove a point. They said, your mother and your brothers are, are looking for you. And listen to what he says next. He looks up at those disciples, the men and women that are his disciples around him. And he looks up at them and this is what he says. He says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Wow. Did you hear what he just said? Not only does he deliver you from darkness and from eternity in hell when you are his disciples, not only does he bring you close to himself and teach you and walk with you, but he actually brings you into his family. He makes you his brothers and his sisters and his mother, it says here. 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Ephesians 1 4 says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption. Adoption as sons by Christ Jesus to Himself. Mark 3 35 says, Whoever, whoever, whoever does the will of God is my brother. And my sister and my mother. How's that for comfort? Does that excite you? That bring you comfort? Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. The will of God is for you to trust Jesus. He died for you. He laid down his life for you. He, he rose from the dead, ascended on high. He's the savior of the world. And if you trust in him, you've been brought into the family of God. And those who, those who trust in Jesus receive a new heart and they continue on walking in the will of God, hearing His Word and obeying Him. Is this you? And if you've had this change of heart, if this has happened to you, you've been given this desire to obey God. You're a child of the King of all kings. That's extremely comforting.